Assalamu alaikum. I've been wanting to talk about the situation in Gaza for quite a while now. As you know, Hamas launched an attack against Israel on October 7th. At the time, I was sick with fever and I had a head cold, and it was uh, very difficult for me to really make a podcast or anything about the situation. So I actually wound up staying in bed for most of the day, and I was in and out of sleep. I woke up periodically, and one of the times that I woke up, I checked my phone and I started reading all of these posts about the attack. So what I want to discuss in this episode is really the some of the conclusions I've come to so far regarding what's going to happen in Gaza, or what is happening in Gaza, I should say, and just some of my reactions about the whole situation. And inshallah, hopefully you find this beneficial or, or useful in some sort of way. One of the first things that I was surprised about was the misinformation that was easily spreading across the internet and across the airwaves via the mainstream media. So as I mentioned, I was sick on Sunday. By Monday, I was starting to feel a little, a little bit better, but I still wasn't 100%. But by now, this was obviously going to be big news. I was following the news coming out of Gaza very closely. And I started seeing all of these wild and crazy and horrific stories about all of the atrocities that Hamas had done during their very brief invasion of Israel. And many of these stories, these wild and crazy stories, came from some supposedly reputable sources. And I'm sure some of them you've heard as well. For instance, the story of the German girl at the music festival who was kidnapped and then killed by Hamas. We also had heard the story about how Hamas had killed dozens of Israeli babies and elderly people. However, by the next day, that was Tuesday, I started to hear counterfactuals to these stories. I started learning that a lot of these stories were not true. And in fact, not only were they exaggerations, they were complete fabricated lies. The accusation that Hamas had killed 40 babies was proven false. The German girl who was kidnapped at the music festival, she's still alive. So after seeing all of these lies and misinformation, I took the position that I was not going to believe anything negative about the Muslims of Palestine unless it came from a reputable source. I mean, a truly reputable source like the United Nations. And I know they have their issues, but or maybe Al Jazeera, and Al Jazeera has its issues as well, but I trust them more than Western media news outlets, or maybe an unbiased humanitarian organization. Eventually, I felt I had to start posting a few things on social media myself to help counter the false narrative that was coming out of Gaza. I still really wasn't healthy enough to record a full podcast or a full video, but I do have lots of friends and family members who are not Muslim. And even those who are Muslim, they may not understand much about this conflict. Definitely, my non-Muslim friends and family members almost certainly do not know much about this conflict. So I wanted to share what the Palestinians had been going through without necessarily discussing the entire 70-plus year history of this occupation and attempted genocide. 
After all, if I was getting this false information, this fake news, so to speak, definitely my non-Muslim friends and family members were as well. So the first post I put up on social media was just a small sample of some of the fake news that we had been fed over the past few days. My second post, however, was more about trying to explain the differences between Gaza and the West Bank, between Hamas and Fatah, just trying to familiarize my non-Muslim friends and family members about the situation going on in Palestine and give them a more balanced view, a more unbiased view. Even though I have to admit I am biased, but I am biased in favor of the Palestinians. If there's any silver lining to this situation, it is that the online narrative about what's going on in Gaza, about this attempt at genocide by Israel, the online narrative is different. It is very hopeful. Now, perhaps that's just the algorithm, the social media algorithm or YouTube's algorithm feeding me what it thinks I want to see. But be that as it may, it appears that there, is a, there are a lot of people and a lot of organizations pushing back against the mainstream narrative. And that is a good thing to see. And we know what this narrative is. It's the obvious or the run-of-the-mill Israel has a right to self-defense BS that we've been hearing for decades. Now, this would have never been the case even 15 years ago, 10, 15, 20 years ago, most people would have simply blindly accepted whatever the mainstream media told them. But, but alhamdulillah, for a lot of people, especially younger people, they're no longer willing to just accept that. And people are starting to look for other sources and alternatives to the mainstream narrative. Now, we can't be naive in my opinion, the mainstream narrative that comes from the mainstream media is still very strong. And I do believe that most people still believe whatever they're told on the news. But at least there's a lot more skepticism. There's a lot more willingness. And again, especially from young people to question this narrative. And alhamdulillah to me, that is a good thing. One group of people who are not questioning the narrative, however are the celebrities. The celebrity support for Israel, while it has not been overwhelming, it's not as not like everyone has an Israeli flag in their bio, like uh, you had the Ukrainian flag in everyone's bio. It's not, it's not that bad. But we do have a situation where LeBron James, LeBron James posted an image on X or Twitter, whatever it's calling itself these days, declaring his support for Israel. Now, while I'm disappointed, I'm not really surprised. I'm certain, like most Americans, LeBron James doesn't know the difference between Gaza and the West Bank. To him, the West Bank is probably a financial institution in Los Angeles. But here's what I want you to do. Go on Twitter, or X, or whatever, and go take a look at that post from LeBron James and look at the comments under the post. It is almost unanimously condemning him for making that post. To me, this is hope, and this is hopeful. I am hopeful that people are not so willing to accept the mainstream narrative as easily as we were in the past. What this also shows is that these celebrities are not true activists. 
You very rarely will you see a celebrity take on a difficult or unpopular cause. That's why so many of them are environmental activists, because it's so easy to say, I support the earth. I mean, who's going to be against that? Who's going to say you shouldn't support the planet? I condemn your support of the planet. Nobody's going to say that. So in my opinion, that's why I really believe a lot of these support, these uh, celebrities take on uh, these activist platforms, these environmental activist platforms. I don't think they really, really care about the earth. They just want to show that they have a human side. They want to show their caring side in the safest way possible. And what is safer than saying that you support the earth? A couple of examples of this flakiness from celebrities, for lack of a better word, are Two recent posts from the actress Jamie Lee Curtis and the singer Justin Bieber. Both of these individuals posted pictures overlaid with quote-unquote pray for Israel texts. But the kicker was that both pictures were actually of the devastation that was going on in Palestine by Israel and not in Israel itself. So this shows many things. Shows many things. First, it shows that these celebrities, not only do they, do they not understand the conflict, they really don't care about it. They don't really care about Israel either, for that matter. They don't really care, and they definitely don't understand it. The only reason why they're trying to portray that they care is so that, is so that they can get social media clout, so that they can get likes. Why do you think LeBron James has so many pictures of him reading Malcolm X's autobiography? I mean, he has to actually sit down, open the book, act like he's reading, then have somebody else take out their camera or make sure the lighting's perfect and everything and take a picture of him reading Malcolm X's autobiography. And we all know how Malcolm X really felt about Israel. Anyway, going back to Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Justin Bieber, once the error was pointed out, once it showed how but that what they had posted was actually talking about Palestine instead of Israel, they immediately took, the, took it down. So this shows that they are also, not only are they only doing this for clout and likes, that they are naturally biased against Palestinians and against Muslims. They only wanted to post something that they felt was safe because they thought it was going to receive unanimous support. They only wanted to post something that was safe, would receive unanimous support, and would signal their support of a certain community. And obviously that community was not the Muslim community. What's going on a week now after the initial attacks and Israel is still bombing Gaza an Israeli ground invasion into Gaza is just about inevitable. I don't believe the Israeli government can afford to not invade Gaza. They almost have to invade Gaza with all the rhetoric that they've been putting out, all the arrogant rhetoric that they've been putting out. However, I do not believe, and Allah knows best, I cannot predict the future, obviously. I do not believe that this will turn out the way the Israeli government expects. Now, I know it can be difficult to see victory for the Muslims of Gaza in these early stages of this war. And so far over the past week, we have seen and, and witnessed and saw on social media so many deaths uh, coming out of Gaza. And we saw how much of northern Gaza has been destroyed. And most likely there's a lot more to come. 
And so right now, it may look like things are, are over for Gaza. But remember that people thought the same thing back in 2001. The United States quickly toppled the Taliban in Afghanistan, and everyone thought the game was over and that the United States had won. But 20 years later, the Taliban are back in charge, and they are even much stronger than they were before. Meanwhile, the United States has weakened and is no longer the same nation it was back in 2001. So this is a reminder that if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I sort of take a long view on things and that this is going to be a long game. I often take several episodes to try to explain a five-year conflict. This is a long game and time and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on our side. If you are interested in knowing more about the history of Palestine, I have discussed it in depth in the earlier seasons of the Islamic History Podcast. Now, it's mostly audio right now, though there are a few videos available, but it's mostly only audio at the time, at this time. But I still encourage, if you have the time, if you can really commit several hours to learning about this conflict, learning about the history of this land, uh, that is Palestine, I encourage you to do so. You can start from season four of the Islamic History Podcast. There's an episode called Israel and Palestine. You can also just um, jump the whole thing and just go to islamichistorypodcast.com slash Palestine. But if you go to this first episode of Israel and Palestine, it discusses the history of Jews and Muslims, starting with Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam. And this first episode concludes with the onset of World War I. From there, you go on to, you can go on, you should go on to season five, which discusses the events of World War I, but from the Ottoman perspective. Within this series on World War I, from the Ottoman perspective, we discuss the British conquest of Palestine. We talk about uh, British political ambitions for Palestine. We talk about the Balfour Declaration. We also discuss the, earliest, the early Zionist colonization of Palestine. And then once you're done with season five, we get on to season six. And season six is where we really get into the nitty gritty of things. That's where we discuss the impact that World War I had on the Middle East. So we're going to discuss the early clashes between the Palestinians and the Jewish colonists. We're going to talk about the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. We will also talk about the subsequent wars between the various Arab states in Israel and we'll talk about the rise of the Palestinian resistance groups like the PLO and Hamas. And eventually the series ends with the election of Donald Trump and the situation of Palestine in 2017 and 2018. In addition to these long-form series that discuss the history of Palestine, we also have a couple of bonus episodes about the history of Masjid al-Aqsa, if you want to know about that, inshallah. So a few more things before we wrap up. Really just one more thing. Muslims, stop supporting the Democrats. Stop giving the Democrats your blind, unwavering support. Biden has shown who he really supports, okay? He sent military aid, additional military aid, to the most powerful nation in the Middle East so that they can bomb and destroy an urban population. Now, I'm not saying to go out and support the Republicans either, okay? 
we, we know that there was some talk a couple of months ago, perhaps, about Muslims perhaps allying with the Republicans or with the right-wing political parties to counter the rainbow philosophy that's being pushed in schools in America today. But this war in Gaza shows that this is foolish and impossible. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans care about Palestinians. But my thing is really for Muslims, Muslims because, well, American Muslims, that is, because many of us tend to blindly support the Democrats for some strange reason. I, I don't get it why we blindly support them. Their morals don't match up without don't match up with ours, and they are just as willing to kill Muslims as the Republicans are. So I don't see any reason for us to support them blindly. My suggestion is that you vote for the candidate who promises to do the most to protect Muslims, both in this country and abroad. And it shouldn't matter which party that candidate belongs to, so long as they make the appropriate promises. And of course, we know that people can break their promises, but you got to trust somebody at some point in time. So even if it's a third-party candidate or some unknown candidate that has almost no shot at winning, that's better than automatically, by default, giving your vote to a people who are willingly, to a group of people who are willingly supporting genocide. Not to mention that many of their morals go against Islamic principles. If there are no such candidates, then just vote local. Just vote for local candidates who will help improve your community and don't worry about the national candidates for this election cycle. And wait until we, we do get a candidate who is willing to do things for Muslims. So that's going to wrap it up for today. Inshallah, next week we'll return to discussing the Mughal Empire and going through the series on the Mughals in India. Between the fighting in Gaza and me being sick, I just couldn't get the energy to put out an episode about uh, Shah Jahan and Jahangir and all those guys. But inshallah, next we're going to get back into talking about the Mughal Empire. So may Allah protect, may Allah protect and support the Muslims of Palestine and everywhere in the world. And may Allah give us victory over the oppressors. Subhana rabbika rabbin izati amya sifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcasts on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
So we've seen how the Soviets do one thing and the Mujahideen respond in a different way. So with the Mujahideen moving more into the mountains, the Soviets responded by using chemical weapons to flush the Mujahideen out of the mountains and out of their caves in the mountains. These chemical weapons mostly included napalm and white phosphorus. Napalm is a sticky, flammable substance that can stick to the skin and causes severe burns when it's set on fire. Now for white phosphorus, I'm going to read a quote from the Human Rights Watch website describing the effects of white phosphorus on the body. Quote, White phosphorus can burn people to the bone, smolder inside the body, and reignite when bandages are removed. Toxic to humans, white phosphorus can seep into the bloodstream through the skin, poisoning the kidneys, liver, and heart, and causing multiple organ failure. People can die simply from inhaling white phosphorus. Unquote. So the goal for both sides, whether you're talking about the Soviet Union or the Mujahideen, the goal for both sides in Afghanistan was to break, disrupt, and interrupt the other side's logistics and communications. It is critical for any military to have a reliable means of communication and to be able to move weapons, supplies, and soldiers around. That's logistics. If you can disrupt the flow of information and the ability for your enemy to move supplies around, then you can greatly destroy and degrade their ability to fight. The Mujahideen targeted the Soviet communications and logistics by attacking the roads the Soviets used to move their supplies around either from the Soviet Union into Afghanistan or within Afghanistan. The Soviets targeted the Mujahideen's communication and logistics by attacking their primary support in the rural countryside. To do this, the Soviets bombed food storage houses, they bombed villages, destroyed crops, destroyed irrigation systems, and killed livestock. They also laid landmines in pastures and fields. This, of course, had tragic consequences because Afghan children often mistook these mines for toys. So you have thousands of Afghan children who were maimed or killed by these landmines. All of these brutal tactics on the Soviets' part was aimed at forcing the villagers to relocate out of the countryside and to the cities or towns where the Soviets had more control. Of course, these Soviet tactics led to atrocities. Millions of refugees, many of them wound up either in Pakistan or Iran. And ironically, for the Soviets at least, many of these Refugees that wound up in Pakistan eventually joined the Mujahideen. The primary Soviet advantage, of course, was their aerial weapons, their helicopters, their airplanes, their bombers, things like that. The Soviet forces openly targeted civilians throughout the war. I found a UN investigation conducted in 1986 that was only reporting on events that took place in 1986. This UN investigation stated over 100 cases of Soviets bombing civilian targets in 1986 alone. In addition to having to worry about bombs falling out of the sky, 
the Mujahideen could also face extreme punishment and extreme torture if they were captured. And yes, Mujahideen were often captured. And when the Mujahideen were taken prisoner or captured, they would often wind up inside of a Qad prison. Qad is K-H-A-D. That's the secret police for the communist government of Afghanistan at that time. Once the Mujahideen or anyone wound up inside of these Qad prisons, it was over. The same UN investigation that I mentioned earlier reported several incidents of torture on Afghan prisoners by COD agents during interrogation sessions. In addition to the torture the Afghans experienced inside of these COD prisons, thousands of people were also killed in the most notorious prison in Afghanistan, Puli Charki Prison, located just outside of Kabul. This prison, Puli Charki Prison, was used by the PDPA the communist the afghan communist party even before the soviets invaded in 1979 as we mentioned in the earlier episodes notaraki and hafizullah amin they executed over 20,000 prisoners during their reign 